This morning I want to continue on with our sermon series, St. Luke's on Broadway, by looking at the movie and the musical, White Christmas. You know, I think it's appropriate for us to come and to celebrate Christmas here in July for three important reasons. Number one, we have been having more than 100 degree weather day after day. And it was our belief that if we all got together and started thinking snow, maybe the temperatures would come down. Number one has worked. That's pretty good now, you know. Number two, you know, I always come to the end of Christmas and I wish it wouldn't end. By the time I've gone through the four weeks of Advent, preparing my heart, decorating the house, going to party and wrapping gifts and giving them, centering myself about the birth of Christ, a baby in Bethlehem. I'm always at a good spot. There's a greater sense of peace, a greater sense of joy. And I I remember always just saying, I wish I could carry this feeling with me all through the year. And you have this commitment to try to do that year after year. And yet by the time you get to July... Are you in the Christmas spirit? No, I think it's worthwhile for us to come back and to celebrate Christmas in July, to know that spirit again. Third, you know, I look at it and I think it's important to celebrate Christmas in July because we're probably celebrating closer to Jesus' real birthday now than we do when we celebrate in December. I mean, you know what the Bible doesn't say, December the 25th is the day to celebrate Jesus' birthday. All the Bible says is the shepherds were out in the field watching over their flocks by night and an angel appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round them and they were filled with fear. We know the shepherds, they were poor, but they weren't dumb. If it's wintertime and it's cold... They're not going to be out in the fields watching over their flocks by night. They get the sheep and they put them in a pen and they go inside. No, most scholars say probably, probably that Jesus was born sometime in the spring or summer. The reason we celebrate on December the 25th is because the Christian church was born into the pagan empire of the Romans. The Romans worshiped the sun. And they would worship, and you and I know that December the 22nd is the shortest day of the year in terms of light. Right now, the days are getting shorter every single day. You don't really notice it, but they are getting shorter. We're on the way to December the 22nd. The Romans, thousands of years ago, didn't have our precise equipment, but they watched close enough. They could tell you that the sun was going away And then by December the 24th, it was coming back. And when they knew the sun was coming back, then they threw a party on December the 25th to celebrate the sun is coming back. Well, the early church is born into a culture that is used to having these celebrations. And the church just kind of co-opted their celebration and said, we can celebrate. We can celebrate the true sun. The Son coming into the world. God's Son. A baby born in Bethlehem. He is the real reason to celebrate. 
And so we began to simply establish at a time when there was celebrations in the Roman Empire to say, we will celebrate for the real reason, it's the birth of Christ. When was he born? Spring, summer, we're not real sure. But to celebrate in July? Probably closer than celebrating in December. It's fascinating that the first time that White Christmas, the musical, hit the stage was in July. It opened in the year 2000 in St. Louis at the Muni Outdoor Amphitheater. Now, I think that's fascinating that here you have a show that is the number one hit show of the year in 1954, and it doesn't become a musical on stage until the year 2000. But in July of 2000, it opens at the Muni Amphitheater there in St. Louis. It is a big hit. It moves on to San Francisco and ultimately to Boston and to Buffalo and Detroit. It's made it to Oklahoma City back in 2013. But it didn't make it to Broadway until November of 2008. It was scheduled to run for seven weeks. And it ran from November the 13th all the way to January the 4th, 2009. And then in November 2009, it ran all the way till January of 2010. So about 17, about 14 weeks on Broadway, without a doubt, White Christmas is the shortest running show on Broadway that we've looked at now in four years. But it was there. And it's a part of who we are as a culture. 63 years later, it's still one of the most popular movies to ever come out. It all started back in 1942. Irving Berlin had written the song, White Christmas. He wrote the story, White Christmas. It got put together, though, originally in the show, Holiday Inn. Holiday Inn starred Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. And that's where we first heard the song, White Christmas. Bing Crosby sang it. It went to number one, became hugely popular. It was a very, very successful show. That year, White Christmas would win an Academy Award for Best New Song. And just as a parenthesis that this doesn't really matter at all, but I thought it was interesting. What happened was, when they came to the Academy Awards, Irving Berlin was going to be announcing Best Song of the Year. And who was the winner? Irving Berlin of... Of White Christmas. And it was so awkward that the Academy made sure that that would never happen again. The other interesting thing was that that show, Holiday Inn, it is where the name for the hotel chain came from. That movie. Well, it was just a huge hit, an impact on the United States. But about 10 years went by and they began looking at now trying to bring the show back, but to change it to change the story some and to add more Christmas feel to it, add some new songs, and that's when they came out with White Christmas. And it was Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye and Rosemary Clooney and and Ellen Vera, um, Vera Ellen. I mean, it just, it was a great, great show. You couldn't have White Christmas the song win a second time. It's already won an Academy Award. But the new song that they added, one of the new songs was Count Your Blessings instead of Sheep. And it got the Academy Award nomination. Didn't win, but it was one of the nominations. And it also went to number one. 
It was a huge success in 1954. And White Christmas was the number one movie of the year. Now I got to digging in trying to look at all this kind of stuff. I love doing all this research. And as I was digging in, I discovered something. Do you know what's the number one single ever to be selling in the United... Well, actually the world. The number one record, the single record selling in the world. White Christmas by Bing Crosby. The number one selling record, single record in the world. 50 million copies. It's been said when you take all the artists who've performed White Christmas, it has been sold and performed more than 400 million times. But 50 million just by being Crosby. Do you know what number two is? Elton John, Candle in the Wind for Diana, 33 million. Number three, Silent Night by Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby has two out of the top three biggest selling singles in the history for our world. We love Christmas. We love the message and the spirit of Christmas. And sometimes the younger generation may not realize just what a star Bing Crosby was, but his number one hits were more than Elvis and the Beatles combined. No, Bing Crosby truly was, was amazing. And White Christmas has touched people's hearts now for 63, well actually back to 1942, for all these years. Why? You know, some people say the movie was just too goody-goody. I actually think that's why we love it. To have a movie where there is no Killing, rape, mayhem, death, tragedy. Now you got a movie about two friends who have been soldiers in the war and now they care about their old general who has an inn in Vermont and it's struggling financially and they want to help him make a go of it. Not for any reason other than the fact they loved him. They cared. They want to help. It's about two guys who've made a big hit and now on Broadway and they decide to help a sister act. Two women. And it's all about misunderstandings and disagreements and hurt feelings. But about how people apologize and they're reconciled and forgiven. It's about how when you decide you're going to care and bless somebody else, love grows that has a happy ending. But I think when you live those values, you have a happy ending. And I think when we watch that, it, does, it speaks to our soul because that's what we feel like is true. It is the message not just of a, of a musical White Christmas. It certainly is the message of Christmas. That's God who sent His Son into the world. A baby born in Bethlehem. A baby who comes to bring life and to bring us together to know what it means that we are loved by God and to love each other. And when you celebrate that spirit of Christmas, well, you can't help but feel joy and peace and a sense of love. It's the Christmas spirit. 
And I think that's why for the last 63 years, people have loved the movie White Christmas. And it's why for 2,000 years, the church has celebrated Christmas, even in July. So what I started doing as I worked on this show was I started trying to look back at all the different people who've been in White Christmas. Whether it was the movie or whether it was the musical, to go look at them and to see how did the storyline affect them as they portrayed these characters. And it really has been interesting. I, I actually found a page on the actor and actresses on Broadway that asked that very question. How did the show White Christmas, being in it, affect you? There's so many things I wanted to tell you today, I just don't have the time. And so I finally narrowed it down to two. First of all, Tony Yazbek, he played Phil Davis. That was the part played by Danny Kaye in the movie. Tony Yazbek said, The show, I'd like to be more of a volunteer and reach out more to those in need. We can all make a difference in someone's life. The musical White Christmas tells us everybody can make a difference in somebody's life. That's what it's all about. The two army buddies wanting to be able to bless their general, wanting to help the sister act. We all can bless somebody's life. It's what we learn in the Christmas story. It's because of God's love that you have Joseph who decides he wants to be there to help Mary even though he doesn't quite understand and the world doesn't understand. Joseph is there, faithful, loyal. It's about an innkeeper, an innkeeper who has no room and yet... He wants to do whatever he can to help Mary and Joseph get out of the weather and have a place to stay. It's about shepherds who are poor and powerless, and yet they come to celebrate the birth of a baby with strangers they don't know. It's about wise men who will come with gold and frankincense and myrrh and bring the gifts to a baby. No, you have this scene, these people, it all gets created. And it's the rich and the poor, the Jews and the Gentiles, the powerful and the weak. They all come together to be there for each other, to help each other. That's what Christmas is about. It does something to our soul and reminds us we want to reach out and bless life. Another one of those that I really looked at and learned a lot about that I did not know was Rosemary Clooney. Rosemary Clooney, you remember, played one of the sisters in the movie. She played the part of Betty Haynes. She was the older sister. And Rosemary Clooney had a, had a very fascinating life. It turns out she was born in 1928 in Maysville, Kentucky. She had a younger sister and a brother. Her father was an alcoholic. It's when she was 13 years old that her mother took her brother and went to California because she wanted to marry a sailor. The father did the best he could to take care of the two girls and keep a roof over their head, but after a while it was just more than he could do. And so he decided one night just to kind of celebrate and he took all the money and he left and they never saw him again. Suddenly, Mary, Rosemary Clooney was alone with her sister at 16 years old. 
They begin to collect Coke bottles and take them back for the deposit money. They would raise enough money to be able to buy meals at school for lunch. Soon the telephone was turned off and then the utilities were turned off and they were behind on the rent. These two teenagers trying to make it in the world on their own. They heard about an open audition at a radio station in Cincinnati and they went and they entered the contest and as a sister act they won. They won cash and that helped them keep afloat. But more than that, it also got them discovered and now they started getting all kinds of offers to come and sing here and to sing there and sing here. And these two kids now started making money by singing to keep themselves afloat. They did that for these next number of years. And another thing started happening. They started being heard by other people who were truly connected in the world, in the music world. And people became interested in them. And finally, when Rosemary Clooney was 21 years old, she said, now it's finally time to go to New York. She went to Broadway. She had made a connection now with Mitch Miller. Some of you will remember Sing Along with Mitch. Mitch Miller and Mitch Miller... Uh, signed her to a contract and wanted her to sing a song. It was a song he wanted her to sing with an Italian accent of, come on to my home, come on to my home. And she thought it was the dumbest song she'd ever heard. She hated the song, but they kept pushing her she needed to sing it. And she finally said she would sing it. And it went to number one. Huge hit. Took the financial pressure off. But it really brought her into the limelight of people knowing her through this song, Come on My Home. And it was at a perfect time in 1952 now when Irving Berlin was starting to help cast the show of, holiday, of White Christmas. And so she was chosen now to play opposite for Bing Crosby in the show. That would certainly change her life forever. It was very successful she was now involved dating with a man, uh, Dante DiPaolo, an Italian dancer. Everybody knew they were going to get married. And then suddenly she eloped with Jose Ferrer. He was 16 years older than her, a very successful actor. Everyone was stunned. They settled down out in California, there in Hollywood, bought a beautiful home. They had three children. But they then got divorced after a number of years. But after a couple of years, they got back together, got married again, had a couple more kids. Now they had five children. To the world, she looked like she had it all, living this incredibly beautiful home. Here she's this famous singer, and she's got five kids, this handsome husband. The truth of the matter was, her world was falling apart. The stress was incredible. And so she started taking sleeping pills and more and more. And before she knew it, she was addicted to prescription drugs, sleeping pills. With the addiction, then there was another divorce. And now she was on her own. Her career was spiraling down. She'd come to know Bobby Kennedy, got very interested in politics. And in 1968, she was supporting Bobby Kennedy and she was there in California and only a couple yards away from him when he was assassinated. And with the assassination, the death of her friend, and the 
addiction to prescription drugs and now the divorce and the depression, Rosemary Clooney literally just cratered emotionally and mentally, physically. She checked herself into a hospital and she would be there for several years for therapy. It'd be the early 1970s before she felt she could pull it all together and come back. It was in 1973, she's trying to figure out how to go forward. She was in her little Corvette convertible sitting at a stoplight when a a Thunderbird convertible pulled up beside her and she looked over and there was Dante DiPablo. After all these years, she hollered out her phone number to him. The light turned green, she drove off. He said he wrote her number down in the dust on the dashboard. He called. It wasn't long at all. They were back together. They were married. They would be married for the rest of their lives. In 1973, having Dante back made such a difference. But the career was still really struggling. Until she got a call in 1976 from a friend. His Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby knew the struggle she was having her career. He called and he said, I'm going to have a 50th anniversary farewell tour. Would you like to be a part of the show? He didn't have to do that. What was she going to bring? But he did. And Rosemary knew this is exactly what she needed and she jumped on it and she was a part of Bing Crosby's 50th anniversary farewell tour. And it was a farewell tour. Because one year later, in 1977, on a golf course in Spain, he would have a heart attack and die, 74 years old. But for Rosemary Clooney, it was a new beginning. It was the revival of her career that would run another 20 years. There was suddenly recording contracts, and there was performing opportunities, and the world opened back up to her again. And she would always say, I owe so much to Bing Crosby. A friend who was there to do what she couldn't do for herself, to open that door, changed her life. It's what the story of White Christmas was about. Helping a young sister act, helping a general, changing their lives. That's what the story of Christmas is about. God's love and grace coming to give us a new beginning to change our lives as we experience the gift of God's love and decide to reach out and to love one another. You know, in December, you and I went out of our way to buy gifts and to wrap them and to bless people. When was the last time you got somebody a gift and wrapped it and surprised them? What if this week you decided to go out of your way and give the gift of yourself or a material gift to find somebody that you were going to surprise and give a gift to someone you wanted to bless or help as a friend. It'll help put you back in the spirit of Christmas. Secondly, Mara Davey. Mara Davey played the part of Judy Haynes. You know, Vera Ellen played that part in the movie. 
But Mara Davey was on Broadway. She played in that. And they asked her, how did White Christmas affect you? And she said, it encouraged me to try to live in the present moment. It's the hardest thing for me to do. I want to stop worrying about the future and focus on the challenges and the blessings of the present. To stop worrying about the future and focus on the challenges and the blessings of the present. Again, it's one of those things that you and I learn from Christmas that even if life is hard, we are blessed. It's about God's gift coming into the world, a baby born in Bethlehem. Christmas helps you and I to put things in perspective to where you stop worrying about the future. You've just learned about God's love and grace. And so you celebrate the moment. You count your blessings. It's why you and I are in the year of gratitude right now to try to get us disciplined to do this on a regular basis. Life can be hard. But yet in the midst of the difficult things, we are still blessed. Do you count your blessings? You couldn't work on White Christmas without learning about Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin is the one who wrote White Christmas, the song, who certainly wrote the show. He's an amazing guy. I always knew of Irving Berlin. You know the name Irving Berlin, one of the greatest composers in the history of America. And yet, man, I really didn't know about him. It was so much fun digging in and learning all about Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin was born back on May 11, 1888. He was born in Russia, actually Siberia, actually in Tumen, Siberia. Now that ought to ring a bell because St. Luke's helps a church to be started in Tumen, Siberia with Katya. I mean, it's amazing. And that's actually where he was born. His real name is Israel Isidore Berlin. He's obviously Jewish. His father was Moses. His mother's name was Leah. They had eight kids. His father was a cantor in the synagogue. They were living there until 1892 when the Cossacks came and decided to kill all the Jews. They lived on the outskirts of town and ran out of town and had a white blanket that covered them in the snow and tundra. They were not discovered while everyone else was being killed and their houses were burned. The next day when the attack was over and they came out, they found their house was burned. Most of their friends were dead. It was time to leave. And so at four years old, they came to the United States. They managed to get here. They came to New York because New York was supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey and streets of gold. And Irving Berlin said they basically were streets of manure. In 1900, it was about as bad as Calcutta. All the immigrants who were coming and the poverty, it was so tremendous. They managed to get to New York. His father um, was working in a, um, in a meat packing company that was kosher. Did it for four years until he suddenly dropped dead. Irving Berlin was in the second grade. He had to drop out of school to start selling newspapers. He would never get more than a second grade education. Started selling newspapers. Make a few cents each day. The oldest four kids all had to do the same so they could try to eat and keep a roof over their head. It made his mother so angry she wanted them in school. Everybody worked. They needed it. But what he learned was there's lots of people who stood on the street corner singing and people would throw money. 
His dad was a cantor. He loved music. So he started singing while he'd be selling newspapers and make a little more money. Then he found people were in restaurants as singing waiters making money. That became his life dream, to be a singing waiter in a restaurant and to make money. Everybody called him Izzy. Is he shorter than Israel? Izzy, boy, Izzy was a singer and he was out there doing his thing. He got a little older until he was about 15, 16. He was working in an Italian restaurant, singing, waiting. The Italian restaurant owner wanted to have a theme song and ask Izzy if he could write it. And Izzy suddenly went and worked on the words and the tune and came up with this neat theme song. Problem was he didn't know how to read or write music. And so he went to the violinist and did the song for him, and the violinist wrote it all down. And they took it to a, the music producer who was going to get produced, and the producer misunderstood his name, and rather than writing down Berlin, he wrote down Berlin, and it was I, Berlin. And Izzy thought, you know, I need something better than Izzy if I'm going to start producing music. And so he decided, uh, um, why not go with Irving Berlin? And that's where the name came from actually by a, a producer who misunderstood his name. But so he started now producing songs. And the kid was incredible. I mean, he starts churning out these songs. And they start selling 5,000 copies, then a 10,000, then a 20, and a 50, and a 100,000 copy song. I mean, he's making real money. By the time he's 19, 20 years old, he's making money. He gets himself an apartment in New York. He winds up moving his mom and family into a nice apartment. Things have changed. He still can't read music. He learned how to play the piano a little bit, but he could only play in one key. But he started working on a new song, and he finally came out with a 1911 called Alexander's Ragtime Band. It opened with a show in New Chicago that same year. In three weeks, it sold a million copies. Irving Berlin was rich. He improved his apartment, but more importantly, he built a home for his mother outside of New York with servants. She was taken care of, and the rest of the family. And now he was the toast of the town. He had a good friend, Ray Gertz. Um, you know, he's just in his early 20s. Ray Gertz had a sister named uh, Deborah. They got together to, to talk and to date. He fell in love with Ray's sister, Deborah. In the end, they got married. They took a honeymoon down to Havana in Cuba. And when they got down to Cuba, it turned out they were having a typhoid fever epidemic. They immediately fled back to the United States. But she had contracted typhoid fever. And five months later, she was dead. To fall in love and to have your wife die? He felt so guilty. He regretted the decision. His world crashed around him. He was unable to write or to sing or to think. He sat at home looking at her picture, staring out the window. It went on and on until finally his brother-in-law, Ray, came to him and said, write about your emotions. Try writing about your emotions. And so he put down what he was feeling into a song he called, When I Lost You. It'd sell a million copies. Irving Berlin was back. He started producing more and more. He got drafted in the army in 1917. He wrote different music in the army. And then in 
1923, out of the army. He now is quite the star. He's in his mid-30s. He is on the social scene and he's invited to a party. Clarence McKay, very wealthy man. They came. He had a daughter, Ellen. She was only 20 years old, 15 years his junior. She was a Catholic debutante. That night they had a big dance. Her first dance was with the Prince of Wales. Her second dance was with Irving Berlin. And it's a dance that would continue until she died in 1988. They would be married 63 years. But it's not how it got there. They started dancing and then they started interested in seeing each other. When Clarence found out about it, he was furious. He was a very strong Catholic and he hated Jews. Very anti-Semitic. He wanted to be around Irving, but not to date his daughter. He immediately told them they couldn't date. He took his daughter and went to Europe for seven months to keep them apart. They came back home and now she was 21 and she said, I'm getting married. He said, you get married, I will disinherit you. I will cut you out. And Irving Berlin said, the day that I marry her, I will set up a trust fund in her name with $2 million. He was good on his word. They got married. He put in his $2 million. And he kept writing about his emotions. He wrote the song always for her. The hit song of the 20s and 30s. My mom and dad's favorite song and he put all the royalties in her name. In the end, they would have four children, three girls, one boy. The boy would die as an infant. Now, Irving Berlin knew great joy and sadness and success and failure. But it kept preparing him and he kept writing. When America got ready to enter into World War II, he had written this other song back in World War I when he was drafted, kind of set it aside, but he got it out for Kate Smith, and it was God Bless America. He donated the royalties and wrote that off to the Boy and Girl Scouts of America. It was a million-dollar donation at that time. He kept writing the songs. He was now prepared for Holiday Inn. What a success that would be. And then he started working on making it into White Christmas. And in 1952, as he's working, he'd come out in 1954. Again, he was feeling the struggles and, and really just the stress was high. He was now 64 years old. He didn't need to work, but he had loved his work, but he was feeling the pressure and he wasn't sleeping. He, he had insomnia. And so he called his doctor to come see him. And, and the doctor came to see him. And in his own words, he said, you know, I was full of self-pity and, and I was doing nothing but complaining about my life and, and it was all about all how bad everything was and how I couldn't sleep. And the doctor just sat there listening and finally when I stopped, he said, Irving, have you ever thought about counting your blessings? He didn't say a word. He got up and went into a different room and he wrote the song, Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep, which would get the next Academy Award nomination and go again to number one, his last number one hit. Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep. He knew that. It's how he lived his whole life, grateful. In spite of the good times and the hard times and the heartache, he was grateful. He knew he was blessed. He was a man of faith, 
always trying to bring Jews and Christians together. He knew how to count his blessings. Just sometimes you forget. When you and I are at Christmas, we remember. We focus on God's love coming into the world and blessing our lives. But as you get away from Christmas, you forget to count your blessings. Irving knew that. It's because of how he was willing to live with gratitude that it affected the way he lived his relationships with people and the way he lived his life. It wasn't about 1935 that Clarence, Ellen's father, wanted to be reconciled. He realized how much his daughter really did love Irving Berlin and how much Irving really did love his daughter. And so in 1935, he came back and he apologized and they were reconciled back to being a family. Just like what happened in White Christmas You can have your hurts and your misunderstandings, but you can be reconciled. Well, that's what happened in their family. You know, for Clarence, this really rich guy, he lost it all in the crash at 29. Had lost it all. And it's interesting. A year after he came back and everybody's reconciled and forgiven, Irving Berlin surprised him with a gift of a million dollars to go out and start again. To be willing to forgive and to be there and to help. Well, that's what you can do if you count your blessings and know you're blessed. It makes it easier to be reconciled and to reach out into love and to care. It's what the musical White Christmas is about. It's what the birth of Jesus, what Christmas is about. And that's why the show has been so successful and worth enjoying and celebrating for 63 years. It's why you and I have celebrated Christmas for 2,000 years, even in July. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.